Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Welcome to Crossroads. My name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor. We are in a series on the Proverbs. And if you've been tracking with us, the last two weeks have kind of been a tandem for us. They, they, they are a pair. Last week we spent some time talking about the kind of the push and pull of the entire book. So throughout the book, there's this tension, this push and pull between the way of the foolish and the way of the wise. And last week, we talked about the way of the foolish. We looked at three types of fools in the book of Proverbs. The simple, those that just haven't made their mind up yet on whether they want to choose wisdom. The fool, which thinks that they know better than wisdom. And the mocker or the scoffer, which believes that they need to share their foolishness with the world around them. Because everybody else is dumb and their foolishness should spread instead of wisdom. And this week, we're looking at the other half of kind of that conversation, which is not just the way of the foolish, but the way of the wise. But as we get into it a little bit, I think we have to acknowledge one of the tensions in the, really, the Bible, our faith, and then the book of Proverbs, which is tensions that exist between kind of the abstract and the things we can grasp, the, the, the conceptual and, and the concrete, Right? Because our faith is built on those. Faith itself is one of those things. The things that I can't really see, but I try and quantify. I think a a great example of something that's both conceptual and concrete at the same time is simply time. I think time in and of itself is a conceptual notion for which we can account for something. And we try and break it down into minutes and hours and days, but it's difficult sometimes. So, for example, if you take a trip with your kid this summer and you load them in the car, and you say, we are driving to Iowa. It's going to be 14 hours, right? 14 hours to a six-year-old might as well be zebra, because they have no idea what that means. You're going to get to Denton, and they're going to say, are we there yet? You know, time to them is a little more conceptual than it is concrete, but it doesn't change the older I get. I just find different nuances of the tension between the conceptual and the concrete. This last year, I know how to quantify a year has been the fastest and the slowest of my entire life. New job, new house, new kid. It is seemingly drug on in a beautiful way I'm so happy about. But I look back, and it seemed like it flew right by. And that tension isn't going to go anywhere, I feel, the older I get. This tension between the conceptual and the concrete. When we talk about wisdom, we're right in the middle of that. Because wisdom is this concept, but it's also this concrete path that we live on. So how how do we talk about those two things in the same sentence? How do we define something that's conceptual and give concreteness to something that's more ethereal? That's kind of what we're doing this morning. That's what the Bible does today. And the Bible gives us a couple different tools to do that. Uh, One is just a word I'm going to throw at you so you can impress your friends. But there's two main ways that we do it, that we define what's not seen. And one is called an anthropomorphism. It's when we ascribe human values to innate objects or spirits. So, for example, all of Disney, the Little Mermaid, uh, you know, uh, Winnie the Pooh. When we take these things that aren't human and we make them human, we make them walk and talk, right? We give them human attributes to try and fully understand something that's more conceptual. We see in the scriptures, When it says the right hand or the right arm of God upholds me, God is spirit. God does not have an arm, okay? He's not upholding you literally with his arm. It's just saying in that text that when I'm weak, God is strong and I can trust him. 
So we do it in the scriptures all the time. We ascribe human values and characteristics to innate or inanimate objects or spirits. The second one, that one we're talking about today, is personification. If you've taken any English class, you know what this is. Personification is when we ascribe human characteristics to that which is not human. It's when we ascribe human characteristics to something that we're trying to understand more. And we see it all over the place. You know, I, I told a story months ago about how I was trying to transfer things to my computer, and my computer crashed, and I lost all of my hard drives. My computer hates me. Okay, my computer does not hate me. That's me personifying my computer to feel something that I feel. When you say chocolate just calls to me, it is not calling to you. It cannot possibly do that. You might feel that way. We're personifying chocolate. When you said my bed cries out to me, it is not crying out to you, right? If it is, you left your kid there. Go and get them, okay? Uh, when we talk about wisdom and why I bring this up, it's because we're in Proverbs chapter 8 today, and it is the largest chunk of personification in the entire scripture. It, it is only about wisdom. Chapter 8 in Proverbs is the personification of lady wisdom, is how it's going to describe itself. And, and what it's doing, wisdom comes to the forefront in this battle between foolishness and wisdom and says, let me tell you about myself. Get to know me so you can find me. And that's the conversation today. So we're going to do something a little different than we normally do this morning. Uh, Normally, if you've been around for a while, I'm a five to seven, maybe max out a 10-word preacher guy. What that means is I like little chunks. Let's take this three, four, five words, and let's spend 45 minutes talking about it. And to some of you, that sounds great. And to some of you, you're wondering why you're here. I don't know, but thanks. And this morning... We're going to do something a little different because we're going to look at the whole chunk of Scripture. So instead of five to seven words, literally we're taking all of chapter eight this morning. It's 575 words. That's right, I'm scared too. But we're in this together, everybody. And and what I want to do is take a pretty high picture view of this. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read the whole thing in chunks this morning. We're going to see characteristics emerge as we look at the autobiographical sketch of Lady Wisdom. So we'll read five verses and say, kind of, this is what we see. We'll read ten verses and say, this is kind of what's coming out next. And we'll keep doing that till we get to the very end. So, at the end of the thing, at the end of the day, if you don't know why you were here, at least you can say I read an entire chapter of the Bible at lunch today. All right? Uh, but before we get into that, and we're going to pray like we always do. Two goals at Crossroads on Sunday morning. One, we want to know God, so we open the Scriptures. We want to know about the character of God. We want to know about the character of the way that God designed the world. And we know that even if we've been in this text before, God's bigger than us and we can keep learning. And it's a beautiful thing that reveals his majesty and our need, not a scary thing. So we open the scriptures each and every Sunday. And then we experience the scriptures together when we open them and when we talk about them and when we worship. Because if we want to fully know God, we have to know about God and we have to experience his influence growing in our world. That's what it means to know God. And so this morning as we open the scriptures, we believe wholeheartedly that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself speaks to our spirits. That he's shaping our souls into the way of Jesus. And so as we read this text... My prayer is the prayer of the scripture, that it encourages you and that it convicts you and it spurs you on into the way of Jesus and the path of righteousness. And so as we read, you got work to do, to ask good questions about how God is shaping your soul this morning from his text as we know him more. Then I ask that you pray for me because like I said, I'm a five to seven word guy and we got 575. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for this morning. We just gather together on Sunday. We can gather together hopefully after a week of of a little rest and celebration and remember that you are good. Remember that you're the giver of good gifts and hopefully roll up that rest and celebration into a God who loves us. Um, 
And I pray this morning as we open your scripture that you teach us about wisdom, that you help bring some concreteness to the conceptual conversation of what wisdom looks like. Ask if you're comfortable to take 10 or 15 seconds and, and just pray that the Holy Spirit might do a work in your spirit this morning as God is speaking to you and shaping you into the person and work of Jesus. I'd ask that you pray for me, that my words might be edifying and uplifting and encouraging, that I might accurately depict the God that we're trying to study this morning in the world that he created well. all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. We're in it together. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 8. This morning, I will be reading out of the net Bible. Follow along in whichever one you prefer. We're just letting you know in case you want a word-for-word version that I'm reading. Let's kick it off. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 and get into it. The appeal of wisdom. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the top of the prominent places along the way, at the intersection of the paths, she has taken her stand. Beside the gates opening into the city, at the entrance of the doorways, she cries out, To you, O people, I call out, and my voice calls to all mankind. You who are all naive discern wisdom, and you fools understand discernment. So we start by Lady Wisdom, by this appeal of wisdom coming to us. And right away, right off the bat, she says these words. Does wisdom not call out? Does she not raise her voice? And right off the bat, we get the purpose of wisdom and the place of wisdom in our world. And here's a big point that we need to understand going into our conversation is that wisdom seemingly does not whisper. I think we paint this picture that wisdom is hard to find. We have to seek it out with two hands and a flashlight. But when the Bible talks about wisdom, wisdom was not something that's meant to be hidden from you. It's meant to be available for you. Wisdom is a thing without an inside voice. I have no idea how I understand that phrase, right? Every morning on Sundays, we have a 7, 8.50, rah, rah, Jesus meeting that we call it. And we meet out there and we pray for our morning. And we pray that God does something, and we pray for the people that are going to show up. And this morning, for example, uh, we start going, and I'm explaining what this morning is going to look like and our big idea, and I'm asking us just to pray that people might see Jesus this morning. And as I'm doing that, I had a parent come from the back of the childcare wing and say, I could hear you perfectly in the very farthest room. And then somebody else came from the ladies' bathroom. They said, I could hear you in the ladies' bathroom. That's not fun. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. I have never had an inside voice. I blame my parents like all good millennials do. I only know one volume level. When we talk about wisdom, seemingly wisdom says that I call out to you, and literally, I don't just speak. I raise my voice at the top of prominent places. So wisdom does two things. It starts by yelling at us, and it yells at us in places that are public that we need it. When it says prominent places there, literally what it means is, is city gates. So it doesn't hide away in deep, dark corners and expect you to go find it. It it hits you or you have to make a decision on the path of life. 
It hits you in the moments where you need it. So what wisdom says about herself at the very beginning is that wisdom isn't something that necessarily is hard to find. It might be hard to choose, and those are two very different conversations. It's kind of like I think we paint the picture of wisdom as, as you know, kind of like a fugitive running from the law, trying to hide and not be found by the people that want to find him. Instead, I think wisdom is one of my favorite stories I've read in the last two years. I think it might have happened a year and a half ago in, in Kansas, a guy named John Ripple in Lawrence, Kansas. And literally, I love this story. He went to a bank. He'd been married for a long time. And he went to a bank, and he had a note. And on the note, he wrote, and I quote, I want $2,924. I have a gun. And he slid it across the way to the bank teller. So the bank teller puts $2,924 in a bag and hands it to him. And then this guy that robbed a bank goes and sits down in the lobby, right? So the security guards come out, and he waved him down, and he said, guys, you don't have to look very hard. I'm the guy that did this, yeah? <laughs> and when they said, why are you telling us this? He said, and I quote, I'd rather go to jail than go back home with my wife, <laughs> right? This is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. My point here is that wisdom is not hard to find. End that story, it's the best part. The judge actually, when he heard everything, and he said, I don't want to go home anymore. Do you know what his, you know what his uh, sentencing was? Six months of house arrest, right? It's the, the best. What it's saying here, it paints a good picture of our view of wisdom, that it's not something we have to seek out to find. It's something that is readily available. The question isn't, is it hard to find? It's will you listen to wisdom that meets you in public spaces and shouts at you? And that, for me, is comforting. It's comforting. It's, read. it's written in your scriptures. You can read it just like I can. The question is not, is it available? It's are you listening to the availability of wisdom? So the impetus isn't on the action of wisdom, it's on the action of us to listen to wisdom. And then it goes on to say in verse 4 and 5, To you, O people, I call out, and my voice calls to all mankind. You are naive, discern wisdom, and you fools understand discernment. And I love this part, because it's going to talk about where it is and then who it's for. So last week, when we talked about foolishness, we started off by saying, you might come in here and you might think you're a pretty smart person and that you don't need this conversation this morning. But what we kind of hopefully taught through was that regardless of what scores you got on your SAT, standardized testing, or IQ scores, you can still be foolish. It is not an indicator of intellect. So even the smartest people can be foolish. And what this says is the opposite. What this says is that wisdom has come for all mankind. No matter how dumb you might think you are, no matter how poorly you've done in schools, what this says is even if you think you have a low intellect or you don't measure up to other people, that wisdom is for you. Not only that, it takes it a step farther and it says that you who are naive or simple and you who are fools understand discernment. It's saying not only did wisdom come for all people, it came for all people regardless of past experience. So maybe you were a fool yesterday. It doesn't exclude you from grasping, from holding on to, from listening and following after wisdom. So what this does is it removes any barriers past guilt or shame or failure that doesn't define your pursuit of wisdom. It says even if you have those things in your past, don't let those past things define your choosing of wisdom in the present. It's grace. It's unadulterated grace that wisdom offers saying that I am here for you, calling out to you whenever you might need me, no matter where you're coming from. It's an encouraging place to start the conversation because I need to know that wisdom is for me. In the middle of my mistakes, I need to know that wisdom is for my marriage. In the middle of the good days and the bad days, and for me as a parent, in the middle of temper tantrums and not, and me as a pastor, in the middle of all the things that come along with that, I, I need to know that I can grasp it. 
Even if I had a bad Saturday, I can have a good Sunday, you know? Grace and wisdom go together, just like grace and the gospel does. And so when we have a conversation about lady wisdom, we have to understand that grace is present, and I'm encouraged by that. It keeps me reading. So wisdom says, I'm here, I'm calling out, and I'm there for any and all. Let's keep reading. Starting in verse 6, read to verse 9. She says, here is what I am, and here is who I'm after. Verse 6, listen, for I will speak excellent things. My lips will utter what is right. My mouth speaks truth, and my lips hate wickedness. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing in them twisted or crooked. Verse 9, all of them are clear to the discerning and upright to those who find knowledge. So wisdom, first and foremost, is our guide. Wisdom guides us along the path as we walk. Wisdom also, wisdom's character is righteous, number two. So wisdom is a guide to our life, and it reflects righteousness. And just for a second, let's stop down and look at that correlation. In the Proverbs, when it talks about wisdom, the characteristics of wisdom, because she's telling you who she is in an autobiographical sketch in Proverbs 8, she says, this is what I am, this is where I call, this is who I'm for, this is what I'm about. I'm about God's righteousness. We see it a couple different places at the very beginning of the Proverbs when it says that this book is written that you might have wisdom. It follows by saying, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair. When we talk about wisdom, we are talking about righteousness. And when we talk about righteousness, we're talking about the character and conduct that conforms to God's design and desire for our world. That's how we define it. We've done that a couple times in the last six or eight months. When we talk about righteousness or a right setting or standard, we have to understand that we don't leave that up to subjectivity. It's an objective line in the sand drawn not by you and not by me, but drawn by God because ultimately it's a conversation about creation and design. So when we talk about the right way to do things that wisdom plugs into, that wisdom reflects, it begins with a conversation on the character and conduct that conforms to God's desire and design in our world. Wisdom says, I live in to God's version of good. And and I I need that. I need that because our version of good changes. It does. It changes societally, and it changes as times come and go. Things that we thought were a good idea 50 years ago, we know are a dumb idea now. I was reading this week, I love any kind of article that kicks back to the way things used to be in big cities in like the early 1900s. And there was a little, I saw a picture, and I wish I would have it for you today, but I saw a picture, and it said that kids need sunlight. And in big cities, sometimes it's, it's hard to get that because there's big buildings. And so they literally would build cages on the outside of walls, kind of like AC units that you put in, and they would put the kids hanging out in these cages so they could, like, sun themselves, right? That is a terrible idea for all situations and circumstances. But we were like, yes, this is good for them, you know? I think that we, if you want to go deeper and darker, we can see other examples. We thought slavery was a great idea at some point. We thought it was something that the Bible actually said was okay. It is not, and it was never something the Bible says is okay, the way that we practice it in our country. Societally, our ethic of morality and righteousness shifts. God's doesn't. Because we change and God doesn't. In Malachi, God says it pretty clearly. I am the Lord, and I do not change. What we need to remember is that when, when wisdom says, I mirror or reflect or my character is righteous, what he's doing, what she's doing is saying that wisdom reflects God's good design. And that good design will never change. That's a good thing for us. 
So when she's talking about who she is, she's painting a case that, that she lives into the created order and design that God established at the beginning, which really makes this bigger picture case that creation, as we've talked about before, isn't static but is active, meaning it's going somewhere, meaning when you read the creation account in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it started, perfect sin entered, travesty ensued, death was brought into the picture, but death is not where this thing culminates. It culminates in life for those who believe in Jesus. It's painting a picture and telling the story of what will be, and we as the people of God live into that. Creation is not static. It is dynamic and moving as we spread God's influence in our world. That was the whole last year and a half in the Sermon on the Mount. Martin Luther King said, The arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Meaning that one way, one day, God will rectify the problem of foolishness. So when we talk about what wisdom is, what her character is like, it reflects God's good design and character in our world. And we see it a couple different places in the Proverbs, in verse 20 in this chapter, it says, I walk in the path of the righteous, in the pathway of the justice. This idea of righteousness and justice going back and forth, interplaying with wisdom. One commentator said, righteousness refers to the moral quality that establishes right order, and justice refers to the moral quality that restores that order when disturbed. So what she's doing is painting a picture that wisdom is more than just a right decision, it's a restoring of right order. It takes a bigger perspective over just... I. I did what I was supposed to. It's more than simply blind obedience. Wisdom is doing the right things for the right reason that restores God's right order. <laughs> so take the Karate Kid, for example. Karate Kid is a good example of wisdom. You had this little punk teenager that wanted to learn karate to beat up some bullies, right? Something we all can probably relate to and wanted to do. And, and he goes to this wise old Asian dude, and he says, teach me how to fight karate. And he says, wax my car, right? And he says, clean my window and, and all the other things. I, I'm going to be honest with you, I haven't really seen the movie. I've just seen clips. And um, I, uh, I think it's a good example because you've got this kid that's just doing the thing he's supposed to do but doesn't understand why. He's not wise at all. The old Asian dude is why because he knew exactly what this is going to lead to down the road. It's a restoring of right order in our world. It's not just obedience. Wisdom calls us into something deeper, something that aligns us with the created order of God. One commentator said, integrity is the moral dimension that separates wisdom from intelligence, learning, and cleverness. Meaning, it's more than just knowing, and it's more than simply obeying. It's a restoration of righteousness. So when we talk about righteousness, we need to understand what we're doing when we talk about wisdom. It's pressing into God's good design. It's a bigger picture conversation than just my Monday. The scripture keeps going in verse 10. Receive my instruction rather than silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. I'm going to read all the way through 21. For wisdom is better than rubies, and desirable things cannot be compared to her. I, wisdom, have dwelt with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I have arrogant pride in the evil way and perverse utterances. Counsel and sound wisdom belong to me. I possess understanding and might. By me, kings reign. By me decrees righteousness. By me princes rule as well as nobles and all righteous judges. I will love those who love me and I will, and those who will seek me diligently will find me. Riches and honor are with me, long-lasting wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than the purest gold, and my harvest is better than choice silver. I walk in the path of righteousness and the pathway of justice. So as wisdom is revealing herself, she's saying, I am your guide, and she's saying, not only am I your guide, but I am... I'm a reflection of God's righteousness. And she says, wisdom is, and this is our text here, your highest, my highest, the highest value. It's better. 
that what you think is the best thing in our world that we can touch and feel and see. This abstract conceptual principle is better than the concrete things you see around you. In verse 19, my fruit is better than the purest gold and my harvest is better than choice silver. Literally, sometimes we miss the fact that this is poetry. So in it being poetry, she's literally not trying to say that wisdom is worth X amount of gold. That's not the conversation. We've missed it there. She's not trying to put a price on wisdom. What she's saying is, in that world, much like ours, gold was the best good, the most expensive thing you could own, and silver was the second most expensive thing. So what, the, what, the, what Lady Wisdom is doing is saying that I am better than the most expensive thing, and just so you aren't confused, I'm better than the second most expensive thing in the world. I'm better than all of it, right? And so we're going to put this in, in our language. I think about the lunchroom growing up in elementary school. I think about, I don't know if you guys did this, but when we sat down at lunch, it was, let's trade all of our food for the most unhealthy things we could find. It was a bartering system. And, and the VIP of the bartering system was the kid whose parents probably didn't care at all and gave him $3 to buy lunch there, which didn't turn into the healthy thing. It turned into vending machine lunches, all right? So these kids would go, and my mom, you know, would make me these sandwiches and pack some vegetables I would throw away right away. And, and these kids would come back, and when I was a kid in the mid-90s, the highest order of good on the food pecking order for tradable sake was gushers. I don't know if you guys know what gushers are. All right, let me ex explain them to you if you don't know what gushers are. And keep in mind, I have no idea why these were good. Gushers are this fake food made of probably some kind of high fructose something that gives us cancer, and they dye them in the little diamonds. And then you bite into these little diamonds that are fruit-flavored, and this explosion of juice liquid thing hits your mouth. And if that doesn't sound good, guys, right? So somebody would get gushers, and they would literally be able to trade like three gushers for like your goldfish, right? I mean, you have to give the whole thing away. It was the highest good. What the commentator is doing, what, what Lady Wisdom is doing is saying, hey, it's better than the best thing you can think of. If I was a kid, I'd write this, and I'd say, wisdom is better than any amount of gushers that you could find in the entire world. You know, the innocence of kids, right? And cavities. So I think what's happening is it's saying, wisdom is saying, she's saying, this is where I'm calling you from, and this is what I look like. And because of these two things, you have to realize that my value is better than anything you can think of, even if it doesn't seem like it. It's the story of Solomon. When God went to him in 1 Kings 3 and said, I'm going to give you anything you want, anything you want. This is the most wise man that's ever lived, the Bible says, ever. And this is not just a Bible saying this. This is exterior, extra-biblical sources that didn't know or believe in God writing about and have written about the wisdom in the, in the wealth of Solomon. They said people would come from countries around just to help and have a conversation with them about their problems. God said, what do you want? Do you want power? Do you want money? Do you want women? Do you want, do you want anything that you could possibly have land? And he said, no, I want wisdom. And God said, you pick the best good. And because of that, out of that flows um, flourishing in some sense. And so what Proverbs does is it paints the picture that wisdom is your best good for, let's borrow a quote from Joel Hosting, your best life now, right? But not like that at all. But what he means, and this is what Proverbs does, is Proverbs paints a picture for an ideal world if all things are operating in their designed purpose. So it says, if you do these things based on the design of the world, this should be the outcome. And we see it a couple different places. Proverbs 10, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Proverbs 3, my child, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments, for they will provide a long and 
lasting full life, well-being for you. What, what it's doing there is it's saying, if you're a good parent, you're teaching your kids a work ethic, it's going to set them up for the future. And, and the way God designed the world to work, where work is a reflection of God's glory and God's goodness, if we work hard, usually returns good things. And so literally what it's saying is if you press into the wisdom in this book and good parents teach their kids good things, then their life is going to be good. And that's true in different parts of our culture. There's a couple of them studies I can read for you. One popped up this last week. It talks about essentially the, the nature of work and, and kids' lives. So there was one, there's three I'll, I'll quote right now. There's one that from the University of Mississippi. They studied 84 people over 25 years. And the professor's studies reportedly showed that children who did chores achieved higher levels of success in life. Everybody, right? Another one, it's a 75-year study from Harvard. It's one of the longest-running studies of childhood psychological variables in our country. They concluded that kids who had chores fared better later in life. Chores were, and I quote, the best predictor of which kids were more likely to become happy, healthy, independent adults. You know? You look at that, you might look at me and say, I did more chores than all my friends. My dad, I don't know if you guys had it this way, we didn't believe in allowances. Chores were your contribution because you were a part of the family, right? There was no, like, dad going to have $2 for gushers. It was, no, 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 you're a part of this family. This is your weight. Go have fun. He didn't vacuum the pool for a solid two and a half decades, right? Again, millennial moved back in after college. You'll get there. So I think when we talk about the ideals of the Proverbs, it's painting a picture that if you listen to the words of the Proverbs, your life will turn out better. And, and look, you can... Look at me and have a conversation of sometimes when that doesn't happen. That's true because we don't live in God's ideal world, but we're trying to make that influence more pronounced. And that's honestly, if you round out the poetry books, because this is poetry, the other two, if you go to Ecclesiastes or Job, if you want to, those two answer the questions of what happens when I live into God's good design and I'm not returned good things. Proverbs is telling us this is what God's good design should return. So she's saying, if you value me like you should value me, your life will end in success and flourishing. And that's physical, but even if it's not physical, there's a deeper level of flourishing there that we get from knowing that we're living into God's good design for our world. That's our next point. Not only does the way of wisdom become our guide, its character isn't just reflective of righteousness, it is. It's our highest value, but also wisdom leads to the joy of creation. Follow with me in verse 22 and on. I'm going to read to verse 31. It says, The Lord created me as the beginning of his works. Before his deeds of a long ago, from eternity I have been fashioned from the beginning, from before the world existed. Where there were no deep oceans, I was born. Where there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were set in place, before the hills, I was born. Before he made the earth and its fields or the top soil of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he marked out the horizon over the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he secured the foundations of the deep, when he gave the sea his decree that the water should not pass over his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman. And I was his delight day by day, rejoicing before him at all times, rejoicing in the habitable part of the earth and delighting in its people. What we see in our text is that not only does, does pressing into the wisdom of God lead to success, but it leads to a depth of joy that plugs us into created order and 
purpose. So if you look at verse uh, 23, it says, from eternity I've been fashioned from the beginning before the world existed. We move into the part where wisdom tells us why we should listen. Here's, here's what I do. And here's what I'm like. And here's how you should value me. You know why you should value me like this? Because I was there before the mountains. And have you seen a young mountain? You know? It's this idea that because I am old and I was around when creation began, I have reverence and weight that you don't have. The street that I live on is a community in Dallas that was built, I think most of the houses were built in the mid-50s, mid to late 50s. And so I love my street. It's a mixture of people like me and my wife who have young, young kids and are just kind of starting off. And then you have like the OG people that have been there since the community was built. OG in the first service, uh, it means original gangster, everybody. And so I had some people stop me like, what is that? <laughs> Don't worry about it. So, um, and, and what, one time when we first moved in, we went to this community block party. And we walk in, and there's this mixture of, I love it, just these older people that have been there for a long time and these younger people that are just starting out. It's a beautiful community. And, and there's this one woman sitting back in the corner, and you could tell that people were just like, are you looking out for her? And they said, who's that? And I asked, who's that? And they said, she was the first person that moved into this community in the first test that was built like on this block. And now it's just surrounded, you know, Dallas. And so I love it because I didn't know who she was and I'd never met her in my life, and I didn't know if she was wise or foolish, but I had reverence for her because she was there when it all began. And so when she speaks, people listened. So wisdom is saying, here's why you should listen, because when, when creation happened, I was there. But, but more than that, the Hebrew word for wisdom that we see here really implies this force that was created along with creation itself. It kind of implies the thread that runs through all of creation that makes it all make sense. It's like when God designed, he designed with wisdom in mind, and these things go together. And so when you live into wisdom, you live into God's good design for the world. It was created at the beginning because it's an attribute of God. It's kind of this idea that when we live into wisdom, wisdom was meant to give us the key to enjoying our world. My wife and I recently um, got an upgraded couch situation. We bought this white Ikea couch five years ago. We bought a white couch five years ago. Guess what color it's not right now? White. And so we've been looking at what to do. We think we have a small child. Nothing stays clean anymore. And so, you know, there are just some stains. And so we decided Ikea stopped making this couch, but we could buy new slipcovers for the couch and pretend to be fancy because we're grownups. And we did. And, and with the new slipcovers, we bought these, these new legs that go on the couch that make us look fancier than we really are. And, and I don't know if you guys have put together Ikea furniture before. I don't know if you have the joy of putting together the farm before, you know? But, but let me tell you something, it's horrible. Ikea, here's what they do, and this is why it's bad. They send you tools with your furniture. They send you these tools that, one, are flimsy, but two, are not any sizes that have ever been created in the history of tool sizes before. So if, it's like they designed this whole couch with this one tool in mind, and you know what happens if you lose the tool? Good luck taking apart the couch. We flip it over, we're trying to go through the legs, and I can't find a tool that fits this leg. I don't really have many hexes. I go to Home Depot, like any good homeowner does, and I buy two different kinds of hexes, metric and non-metric. It's probably called American. I don't know, all right? I buy the hexes, I come back, I get into my house, and I'm trying to make this work. And 45 minutes in, it's probably an hour and a half in, my wife's trying to put these slipcovers on, and she looks at me and she says, what's this bag under the couch attached to the frame? Right? And I said, stop it. Right? We've moved three times with this couch and taken it apart every time. And lo and behold, we find this bag with tools needed to disassemble the couch. 
And so I take out this, this tool that I'd never seen before because they make it for the couch itself because why be similar when you can be different? And, and I, I, I put in a little slot to take apart the leg, and I just, it worked so well. I just kind of had to wave it across the leg, and the leg just fell off, you know? It's like this couch was created with this key in mind. That's what the Hebrew expression kind of means when it talks about wisdom. When it says that I was there at the beginning, it literally means that when God created the world, he created it with this force of wisdom in mind. And as we live out wisdom in our world, it's the essential tool to finding the joy of creation. It kind of goes together. And so the beautiful part is, is that as we press into God's good design, our wisdom then increases as we understand it more, as we understand and grasp and see wisdom. It's kind of like if you ever have learned to play an instrument, or maybe you just think it's easy. You watch these guys up here, and you think, man, I can do that. That doesn't look that hard. I don't know if you guys have played the drums before, but that one to me looks like one of the easier ones, you know? Last week, they had to sound check the drums, and they said, Charlie, can you go back there and and hit the drum? Just hit the drum. Hit the drum once. And I was told several times I was failing. They brought in somebody else, a senior girl at Argyle, and she hit the drums well, you know? And my point is simply there, it's way harder than it looks. Once you have an appreciation for something, if you've played an instrument or just know how hard it is to play an instrument, go to the symphony and your depth of joy will increase when you realize what good they're doing. And so when it paints this picture of wisdom and why we should listen, it's saying, not just because I'm good, not just because I reflect God's good design, because I was created to make you understand and experience the joy of the world that God designed. That's why it says in verse 30 and 31, I was beside him as a master craftsman and I was his delight day by day rejoicing before him at all times, rejoicing in the, hap- in the um, habitable part of the earth and delighting in its people. It's this fundamental principle sometimes we overlook that wisdom leads to joy because joy is an outcome of creation. Because when God created, he didn't do it because he needed me, you know? God didn't need more love in his life. He didn't need more drama in his life. <laughs> God didn't need, he created as an overflow of the expression of his goodness and character onto the canvas of creation. It's differently than when we have kids or when we get married or when we make friends. We need that. God has it in and of himself. His creation is only a a reflection of and an overflow of his grace to share his goodness. It's fully satiated in and of itself. And so when we press into God's good design, what we see here is that we get to share into the joy, we get to share into the joy that was intended from creation in the first place. So wisdom leads to a fullness of joy. John Calvin said, there's not one little blade of grass, there is no color in this world that is not intended to make men rejoice. Wisdom is ordered living that aligns with the created order of the world around us and brings about joy. So she's saying, you know why you should listen to me? Because I was there at the beginning. This place was created with me, with me in mind. And when you press into that, you find joy. Not just success, but joy. And then she ends with one final plea for people to listen to in verse 32. So now, children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction so that you may be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching at my doors day by day, waiting beside my doorway. For the one who finds me has found life and received favor from the Lord. But the one who misses me brings harm to himself. All who hate me love death. 
So the final point that we have after we've hit through our five as we dive into the person of wisdom. Wisdom is a guide, and wisdom reflects righteousness. Its character is righteousness. Wisdom in all times is the highest value that we have. It leads to the joy of creation. And the last one that we see in our text today is wisdom is simply just essential for life. It's essential for life. It says in verse 35, it says, For the one who finds me has found life and favor from the Lord. When you live in the way that God designed the world to work, it's the only way to experience the life that he designed in the first place. T.S. Eliot is an author, the poet, he was agnostic, and then he became uh, a Catholic. And in the middle of that, he wrote a poem called The Hallow Man, Hallow Man. And he said this. I love the poem. It's the middle of the poem. And he said, shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. Those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom remember us. If at all, not as lost violent souls, but as the hollow men, the stuffed men talking about the design of life and living with and without God. It's what God says in Isaiah when he said, for this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he found it. He did not create it to be empty and hollow, but formed it to be inhabited. The idea that wisdom looks like something. It looks like a reflection of God's good design. Wisdom is making your case for why we should follow in her autobiographical sketch. It's the personification of this abstract, this conceptual kind of conversation of what wisdom does in our world. But it's still really difficult sometimes to break down the conceptual into the concrete. Even though we have all these reasons why, I still want to know what it looks like. Give me more here to help me walk that line between the idea of wisdom and what wisdom is specifically. I know why I should follow. I know what it does. I know its intended purpose in our world. That all sounds beautiful, but what does it look like? I go back to watching, or I go back to car trips with kids, you know, at the very beginning. <laughs> I remember we used to take car trips with my family, and in our only vacations in the summer, we left for two weeks, and we would go to Iowa for a week to the farm to see my dad's parents, and we'd go to South Dakota for a week to see my mom's parents. And look, there was three of us, at least, three boys in the back of the Suburban, and it was about 15 to 16 hours, no matter what way you cut it. And, and this is back in the day before iPads, when, you know, men were men and kids were bored. And so they loaded you up in the car, and they said, we're going to drive 16 hours. That didn't really do it for me as a nine-year-old. So sometimes I would break that down, and my parents would break that down. We had this little black-and-white 13-inch TV. And back then, they had a VCR recorder right there in the TV for convenience. And we would wedge this bad boy in between the front seat and the passenger seat, you know, the driver's seat and the passenger seat. And I didn't realize until I was older, was even though you wedged it there, the speakers are still blasting at my parents. But, you know, I'm deaf, and that's their fault, so they can join me. Anyway, so we would start watching movies, and my parents would say to me, they would be like, hey, it's, it's five movies until we're going to stop. I'm like, oh, I grasp that. I get that I can watch Cool Runnings twice and Sister Act three times, and then I'm there, everybody, you know? It's making the conceptual concrete. So we have a conversation about why we follow wisdom but at the same time, there's more work to be done to define what it looks like. And, and really, when we have a conversation about wisdom in Proverbs 8, it's the personification of wisdom, but ultimately it culminates in the best version of what that we can find, and that is the person and the work of Jesus. Ray Ortland is a pastor, and he writes this. It's a long quote. We'll, you'll see the end on the screen. He says, God does not intend us to crush us with layer upon layer of demand. He intends to help us. 
The book of Proverbs is practical help from God for weak people like us stumbling through daily life. It's his counsel for the, for, for the perplexed, his strength for the defeated, his warning to the proud, his mercy for the broken. The book of Proverbs is the gospel, good news for the inept through the wisdom of another. It's about grace for sinners. It's about hope for failures. It's about wisdom for idiots. The book is Jesus himself coming to us, our counselor, as our sage, as our life coach. So when we look at what wisdom is that we found today, ultimately we see it completed fundamentally and fully in the person and work of Jesus. It's the most concrete example of the conceptual I have. So let's walk back through it a little bit. We see wisdom is a guide for all people. Jesus says, come to me, those who are weary, who are burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, I have come in John 3. I've come that whomever puts their trust in me might find life that lasts forever. He's our guide that calls all people, regardless of past sin, into a relationship that leads to a better future. Wisdom is a guide for all people. Wisdom is, its character is righteousness. In Romans 3, it says about Jesus, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, meaning Jesus was the perfect depiction of the line that we should walk in the world that God created. Jesus perfectly reflects God's right, good ways. Wisdom's character is righteous. Wisdom is the highest value. Paul in Philippians, he's talking about all that he's accomplished at the beginning of chapter three, and he's accomplished a lot. He was a learned, accomplished, smart man. You can argue he's probably the most accomplished of all the apostles and disciples in the first century church. And he outlines those in the first six verses of Philippians 3, and it brings him to this point in verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. Saying nothing matters but God, but Jesus. Nothing. It's my best good. Wisdom lives, leads to the joy of creation in Colossians. It's a beautiful text on the supremacy of Christ in our world. It says who Jesus is and what he does. And it says in the middle of that text that Jesus is supreme over all creation. And through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't see. He made the things as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authority in the unseen world. Everything was created through Christ and for Christ. If we want to live and find ultimate joy in creation, we live a world for Jesus through the power of Jesus in our day-to-day. Not only is wisdom, not only is wisdom lead to joy of creation, but wisdom is essential for life. First John 5, 12, whoever has the son of life, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Ireland went on to say, that is what the Proverbs 8 is about, the joyous grandeur of Christ, relevant to all of life, with higher aims and richer rewards than we would otherwise even contemplate. (laughs) And right now you're probably thinking, if the answer was Jesus, why didn't you say that 45 minutes ago and we could have been done by now? I get that, guys. (laughs) But I think it's really important to dive into the tension of the concreteness and the conceptual, talk about what wisdom looks like, why it matters, and then to bring it back to this. Sometimes it's hard for us to figure out the tension between the two, but if you want to know what what wisdom looks like, it looks like following Jesus. In the first century world, they would ask Jews, what is wisdom? They go to Proverbs 8, and they read it out loud and say, what is wisdom? And your answer as a Jewish person still is, is wisdom is the Torah, it's the law. 
Jesus is walking at one point in the Gospels, and they stop him, the teachers of the law, and they say, hey, what is the greatest of all the laws? What's the greatest wisdom? And he says, here's what it is. It's loving the Lord your God with everything you have, your heart, your mind, your soul, and then transferring that love as it overflows from God into everything and everybody around you so they might see him and know him too. So when we talk about wisdom, when we talk about abstract principles, I need to know that they're fulfilled in the concreteness of Jesus, in the humanity of Jesus, and that as I try to navigate the waters of this world, some days wise and some days foolish, if I'm ever confused, I look up to the cross so that Jesus is the greatest example of wisdom, wisdom that's our guide, wisdom that is righteous, wisdom that's our highest good, that reflects God's good design and brings joy to our world and wisdom that we find life in. Let me pray, let's keep worshiping.